This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. There's a couple of very brief announcements. Immediately after the, uh, immediately after the uh, presentation, we're going to have limited question and answers, and then the gallery will be open. And those of you who have not seen the exhibit and, or wish to go back, it, that you will have that opportunity. Uh, let me get my little talk out about Father Justin. It's very brief. I was fortunate enough to take two groups to, uh, uh, to Egypt, and on both visits, Father was gracious and brought us to see the library and one of the other rooms that we sat, and he met with us and talked with us about St. Catherine's. And, um, and when we talked to the group after, and we asked them what was the best part, because we, you know, we did the Holy Land, we did Jordan, we did a cruise on the Nile. The best thing was the visit to St. Catherine's. So if you've never been to St. Catherine's, go. It's heaven on earth. Father Justin, he was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1949. He lived in Chile until the age of nine, after which his family moved to El Paso. After graduating from the University of Texas at Austin in 1971, he entered a Greek Orthodox monastery three years later. He was tantrid a monk in 1977 ordained a deacon and a priest the following year. He is a member of St. Catherine's Monastery since 1996, where his responsibilities have included the photography of the Sinai manuscripts with a high-resolution digital camera. Five years ago, the members of the community elected him librarian. He's been at the monastery for 16 years, and there are 25 monks in the community. So we'll get all those little uh, things that everybody asks uh, of Father. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Father Justin. Father Richard visited Sinai twice, and when they had the exhibition here, he made the initial invitation that the Archbishop accepted that, and it was from this invitation that many other speaking engagements have resulted, but this was the initial invitation, and I'm very, very happy to be with you this evening and to try to talk about the significance and the theology of icons, which will contribute, I hope, to the appreciation of the splendid exhibition that is here in the gallery. The story of Christian art begins in the catacombs, vast underground cemeteries that encircle the city of ancient Rome. Here, by the light of torches, Christians buried their dead, recording the name and details of those who were being laid to rest. Among the epitaphs, you will find Christian symbols. More rarely, you will encounter paintings. These early Christians were not self-consciously creating works of art. They were recording a witness to their faith and hope. If we look carefully at these epitaphs and paintings, we will find that they still have much to teach us. The first example, now in the Lateran Museum, is dated to the fourth century, and is thought to have come from the catacomb of St. Callistus or Pritistatus. It reads, Aurelius Castus, who lived eight months. Antonia Sperantia made this for her son. Below is a depiction of a shepherd. He bears a lamb on his shoulders and two sheep recline at his feet. These early Christians expressed their faith instinctively in both text and images. But inscriptions are accessible in a way that imagery is not. 
Depictions such as this are for the initiate and require explanation. Jesus told a parable about a shepherd who sought out the sheep that had gone astray and bearing it on his shoulders, he returned it to its place in the fold. He also said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The Galatian sacramentary, which preserves some of the oldest Latin liturgical prayers, includes a prayer for the burial service that refers to the dead as carried home on the shoulders of the good shepherd. Other recurring Christian symbols are the anchor or the dove bearing an olive branch in its beak. On later epitaphs, we find more overt Christian emblems, the Cairo monogram or the Alpha and Omega. The catacomb of Comodilla contains an image of Christ dating from the late fourth century. In the catacomb of St. Priscilla, one finds a depiction of the Virgin Mary dated to the second century. Here also in the third century, Christians painted the good shepherd and doves bearing olive branches. They also painted the three children in the fiery furnace of Babylon, examples of courage and perseverance and reminders of God's protection during times of persecution. The epitaphs of these early Christians reveal much about their faith. We read, to dear Kyriakos, sweetest son, mayest thou live in the Holy Spirit. Regina, mayest thou live in the Lord Jesus. Matronata Matrona, who lived a year and 52 days, pray for thy parents. Anatolius made this for his well-deserving son, who lived seven years, seven months, and 20 days. May thy spirit rest well in God. Pray for thy sister. It has been said that the catacomb inscriptions are ill-composed, ill-written, not infrequently ill-spelt, half Latin, half Greek, and yet neither bad grammar, nor defective orthography, nor rude art, nor cramped space, nor damp, nor darkness, can dim or distort the light with which the consciousness of an immortality floods and glorifies these subterranean vaults. All here is joy and brightness and hope. The often repeated inscription in peace tells its own tale. Such inscriptions are popular expressions of the same hope that we find in a theological treatise, De Mortalitate, written by Cyprian of Carthage in the year 252. He reminds his flock that death is not an ending, but a transit, and this journey being traversed, a passage to eternity. The dead are not lost, but sent before. He writes, we regard paradise as our country. We already began to consider the patriarchs as our parents. Why do we not hasten and run that we may behold our country that we may greet our parents. There a great number of our dear ones is awaiting us, and a dense crowd of parents, brothers, children is longing for us, already assured of their own safety, and still solicitous for our salvation. In this spontaneous expression of their faith through words and images, had Christians gone too far? The Roman world was filled with paintings and statues of the pagan deities. The Jews had always been careful to distance themselves from this idolatry. There were those who felt that such Christian depictions were an unguarded appropriation from the pagan world. Eusebius of Caesarea in the fourth century church history relates that the woman with an issue of blood who was healed by Christ made a bronze statue to commemorate this miracle. Christ was depicted standing and blessing her, while she was portrayed kneeling and looking up to him in gratitude. Eusebius writes that he has seen this statue for himself. Yet we cannot miss the note of criticism in his voice as he goes on to write, 
Nor is it strange that those of the Gentiles who of all were benefited by our Savior should have done such things, since we have learned also that the likenesses of his apostles, Paul and Peter, and of Christ himself are preserved in paintings, the ancients being accustomed, as is likely, according to a habit of the Gentiles, to pay this kind of honor indiscriminately to those regarded by them as deliverers. One would want to know what these fourth century paintings of Christ and of the apostles Paul and Peter look like. But paintings are fragile, and in general they have not survived from the world of late antiquity. The exception to this is Sinai. This remote monastery, with its dry and stable climate, and an unbroken history extending back to the early fourth century, holds what is today the most important collection of panel icons, 36 of which have been dated to the sixth or seventh century. The icon of the Sinai Christ is the most famous. It was painted in the wax encaustic technique, which uses wax as the medium for the colors. The gold halo is set off by alternating four and eight petal punched rosettes. Christ's mantle and tunic were rendered in a saturated purple. He blesses with his right hand. In his left, he holds the gospel, a thick volume closed with two clasps. The cover is adorned with a cross executed in precious stones and decorated with pearls. The formal frontal depiction of Christ conveys a sense of timelessness. Yet the many intentional departures from strict symmetry add a naturalistic effect. In this subtle manner, the artist has attempted to convey both the divine and human natures of Christ. A second icon depicts the Virgin Mary and the Christ child enthroned. Here also, Christ blesses with his right hand while with his left he holds a scroll. The Virgin Mary wears red shoes, an imperial prerogative, and holds Christ tenderly. She gazes off into the distance. A soldier saint stands to either side, wearing the ceremonial robes of the imperial guard. These are identified by later iconographic types as St. George to the viewer's right and St. Theodore to the viewer's left. Above, two archangels holding scepters look up towards heaven. The hand of God extends from an orb and a ray of light descends to the halo of the Holy Virgin. The two archangels, rendered in a continuation of the Hellenistic tradition, contrast with the enthroned virgin and Christ child and two soldier saints, which reflect the splendors of the imperial court and give the icon a complexity and richness. The third icon shows the apostle Peter. In his right hand, he holds three keys, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In his left, he holds a staff surmounted by the cross. The artist has painted the garment of the apostle in shades of olive using crisscrossing highlights rendered in bold brushstrokes. The gaze of the viewer is drawn to the calm and pensive eyes, the face set off by whirling tufts of hair and beard. The apostle has the face of the sunburned fisherman but he also has the aristocratic demeanor of the leader of the church. The three medallions above depict Christ in the center. Kurt Weitzman identified the other two as depictions of the Virgin Mary and St. John the Theologian, though it has been recently suggested that they may be instead ex voto images included as an expression of thanksgiving by those who commissioned the icon. All three icons are thought to have been painted in Constantinople and may have been sent to the monastery in the sixth century as gifts of imperial patronage when the Emperor Justinian ordered the construction of the great basilica and the surrounding fortress walls. As such, they are examples of the icons that would have been in Constantinople 
at the outbreak of iconoclasm, which the Emperor Leo III, the Osarian, began to institute in the year 726. There were two phases to iconoclasm. The first came to an end under the Empress Irene in 787. An iconoclastic policy was instituted again in 815 by the Emperor Leo V, the Armenian. The second phase was brought to an end in 843 by the Empress Theodora. The origins of iconoclasm have been much debated. The seventh century was very much an age of transition for the Byzantine Empire. It was a culmination of a long process of centralization by which Constantinople emerged as the dominant center of power. In the same century, the empire lost Syria, Egypt, and North Africa to the Arab world, while Slavs threatened its hold in the Balkans and the Lombards became more assertive in Italy. Arab forces attacked Constantinople itself in 674 to 678. And again in 717 to 718, the Greeks famously defending their city with Greek fire. All of these far-reaching changes and conflicts caused a reassessment of the Byzantine polity. This brought into the open issues concerning the place of Christian imagery that had remained unresolved. One must look to these conflicts for the origins of iconoclasm more than to any infiltration of the church and the empire by alien ideas. God commanded Moses, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. The central charge brought by the iconoclasts again and again is that of idolatry. Any image that has been created for use in worship draws attention to the visible material creature rather than the invisible deity. St. Paul, in his epistle to the Colossians, refers to Christ as the image, the icon of the invisible God. In the language of the creed, Christ is one in essence, homoousios, consubstantial with the Father. For the iconoclast, in order for an image to be true, it must be the same in essence as that which it represents. There must be a formal identity between a model and its archetype. A portrayal differs in its very nature from that which it represents and is therefore insufficient if not deceptive. Jesus said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Created images could not be allowed to intrude in worship which must remain entirely spiritual. In a number of churches, iconoclasts removed icons of Christ and replaced them with a depiction of the cross. The cross, being a symbol, did not detract from the worship that is due to God alone. Saint Stephen the New was insistent in his veneration of the icons. He was brought before the emperor Constantine V, who asked him, do you imagine that Christ is trampled upon when we trample upon these images? Saint Stephen had expected this and had brought with him a coin. He showed it to the emperor and asked, whose is this image and superscription? It is mine, answered the emperor. The saint placed it on the ground and trampled on it. The emperor's guards were outraged and ready to avenge this affront to the imperial dignity. But the emperor called them off. The saint had made his point. And yet, while everyone knew that there had been icons in the church for centuries, in many ways, they had been taken for granted. There were passing references to them in the writings of the fathers, but there was no formal theology of the icons. What could be said in their defense? Those who reverenced the icons pointed out that God had indeed forbidden the making of graven images, but at the same time he had commanded Moses, and thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, 
and the two ends of the mercy seat. The second commandment was thus not a prohibition against representational art, but it was a prohibition against attempting to betray the deity, for God had revealed himself, but not in any form. Moses said to the children of Israel, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. But in the fullness of time, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, who was uncircumscribable, condescended to be circumscribed by time and place. And he who was indepictable thereby became depictable. St. Theodore the Studite wrote that in Christ, the divine nature and the human nature were united into a single prosopon, a single person, and a single hypostasis, a single subsistent entity, which has individual characteristics and can be portrayed. And St. John of Damascus wrote, I do not venerate the creation instead of the creator, but I venerate the creator, created for my sake, who came down to his creation without being lord or weakened, that he might glorify my nature and bring about communion with the divine nature. I do not depict the indivisible divinity, but I depict God made visible in the flesh. Icons are a witness to the historical Christ. A refusal to accept icons was a refusal to accept the full implications of the incarnation. Courts of Roman law had an image of the emperor, and this image was honored as if the emperor himself were present. Basil the Great in the fourth century pointed out that this does not mean there are two emperors because the honor offered to the image crosses over to the archetype. An image conveys the likeness of the original person. Image and archetype are thus said to share the same likeness. Saint Dionysius the Areopagite in his ecclesiastical hierarchy had written, for the truth is shown in the likeness, the archetype in the icon, each in the other with the difference of essence. This was quoted by Patriarch Nikephoros of Constantinople in the early ninth century, who himself wrote, likeness is an intermediate relation and mediates between the extremes. I mean, the likeness and the one of whom it is a likeness, uniting and connecting by form, even though they differ by nature. And yet a traditional icon was not a simple portrait. The likenesses conveyed in icons were those of Christ or the saints who live in heaven. Here St. John appealed to the example of the tabernacle that had been constructed for the worship of God in the Sinai wilderness. God said to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I shew thee. After the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. The tabernacle on earth shared the likeness with the tabernacle in heaven that had been revealed to Moses. Because of this correspondence, the ministry of the priests within the tabernacle was unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as we read in the epistle to the Hebrews. St. John of Damascus invokes all of these associations when he writes, and this whole tabernacle was an icon. And look, said the Lord to Moses, that thou make everything after their pattern which was shewed unto thee in the mount. The tabernacle is called an icon in that it is a reflection of the heavenly prototype. Icons of Christ and the saints are also reflections, each corresponding to an archetype in heaven. As Saint Theodore the Studite wrote, the copy shares the glory of its prototype as a reflection shares the brightness of the light. The Holy Apostle Paul had written of the soul 
beholding the glory of God as in a mirror. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Ancient mirrors were made of burnished brass or other metals. They had to be polished frequently to prevent the surface from being obscured by tarnish or corrosion. We will not fully appreciate these references to a mirror unless we know how mirrors were understood in the Greek world. Plato in the Timaeus explains that mirror images are formed when the light from the eye meets the light from what is seen on the surface of the mirror, and these two sets of rays of light mingle there to form the image. Thus, mirror images actually exist. The mirror, when it is clear, accurately conveys the image that is seen, even as a soul, when it has been purified, becomes like a mirror reflecting the glory of God. It is changed into a real image of God, though God and his image remain distinct according to nature. Philo had written of the mind looking on truth as at a mirror, and Plotinus of the soul recovering its former beauty through spiritual cleansing. Theophilus of Antioch in the second century had written, as a burnished mirror, so ought man to have his soul pure. When there is rust on the mirror, it is not possible that a man's face be seen in the mirror. So also when there is sin in a man, such a man cannot behold God. And Clement of Alexandria had written in the third century, for it is thus that one truly follows the savior by aiming at sinlessness and at his perfection and adorning and composing the soul before it as a mirror and arranging everything in all respects similarly. But it remained to Athanasius of Alexandria to take these metaphors and develop them in a way that was firmly grounded in Nicene Orthodoxy. In his work against the heathen, he writes of the soul being a mirror in which it can see the image of the Father. And later in the same treatise, he writes, for the soul was made according to God's image and created according to his likeness, as the divine scripture shows when it says in the person of God, let us make man according to our image and according to our likeness. For this reason, when the soul puts off from itself every stain of sin with which it is covered and keeps pure only what is according to the image, then naturally when this becomes bright, it beholds and as in a mirror the image of the Father, the Word, and in him considers the Father of whom the Savior is the image. Subsequent spiritual writers continue to use this metaphor to describe the soul's resemblance to God. Philotheus of Sinai is known to us only from his work, 40 texts on watchfulness. He lived in perhaps the ninth or 10th century. He writes, at every hour and moment, let us guard the heart with all diligence from thoughts that obscure the soul's mirror. For in that mirror, Jesus Christ, the wisdom and power of God the Father is typified and luminously reflected. In the first chapter of Genesis, we read, and God said, let us make man according to our image and according to our likeness. And yet in the following verse, we read, so God created man according to the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. There is no mention of likeness in the second verse. The distinction that is implied in the scriptures between image and likeness is explained by St. Gregory of Nyssa. We possess the one by creation, 
we acquire the other by free will. In the first structure, it is given to us to be born in the image of God. By free will, there is formed in us the being and the likeness of God. In St. Viadokos of Fotiki, a fifth century ascetic saint has written, all men are made in God's image, but to be in his likeness is granted only to those who through a great love have brought their own freedom into subjection to God. For only when we do not belong to ourselves do we become like him who through love has reconciled us to himself. No one achieves this unless he persuades his soul not to be distracted by the false glitter of this life. There have been many attempts to explain how it is that man is created in the image of God. Sometimes this is sought in the sovereign dignity of man, sometimes in his spiritual nature, in the soul, in the mind, in the higher faculties such as the intellect, the reason, or the freedom that is proper to man. But according to St. Gregory of Nyssa, the image of God in man, insofar as it is perfect, is necessarily unknowable, for as it reflects the fullness of its archetype, it must also possess the unknowable character of the divine being. This is the reason why it is impossible to define what constitutes the divine image in man. We can only conceive it through the idea of participation in the infinite goodness of God. And St. Maximus the Confessor has written, the human person unites their created nature with the uncreated through love. Oh, the wonder of God's love for us human beings, showing them to be one and the same through the possession of grace. The whole creation wholly interpenetrated by God and become completely whatever God is, save at the level of being. There is an ontological gulf between God and man. The soul is not connateral with God, but this gulf has been bridged by the incarnation. The creator came down to his creation without being lowered or weakened that he might glorify my nature and bring about communion with the divine nature. St. John of Damascus wrote this in his defense of the veneration of holy icons, for icons are a witness to the incarnation. Where iconoclasts had created a dualism, depreciating the material world in their reverence for the spiritual, those who venerated the icons pointed to a material world sanctified by the incarnation and the means of our ascent to the spiritual. We read in St. John of Damascus, for since we are twofold, fashion of soul and body, and our soul is not naked, but as it were covered by a mantle, it is impossible for us to reach what is intelligible apart from what is bodily. And St. Theodore wrote, so whether in an image or in the gospel or in the cross or in any other consecrated object, there God is manifestly worshiped in spirit and in truth as the materials are exalted by the raising of the mind towards God. The mind does not remain with the materials because it does not trust in them. That is the error of the idolaters. Through the materials rather, the mind ascends towards the prototype. This is the faith of the Orthodox. Concerning the visioneration of saints, St. John of Damascus writes, the saints are the sons of God, sons of the kingdom, the co-heirs of God and of Christ. Therefore, I venerate the saints and glorify them, slaves and friends and the co-heirs of Christ, slaves by nature, friends by choice, sons and heirs by divine grace. He also said, from the time when he that is himself, life and the author of life was numbered among the dead, we do not call dead those who have fallen asleep in hope 
of the resurrection and faith in him. St. John of Damascus justified the place of icons in Christian worship and veneration. In his writings, we also find the same consciousness of an immortality that was so pronounced in the epitaphs from the Roman catacombs. It is not only the imagery that has continued from those early centuries, but the faith and hope as well that placed the images and epitaphs in the Roman catacombs long ago. In our own days, we are witnessing a revival of interest in traditional iconography. The Sinai icons especially are being studied minutely, not only to assess their place in the history of art, but to understand and recover, if possible, the techniques by which they were created. If you have as yet had the courage to try to paint icons using wax and caustic media, Yet the Sinai icons of the Macedonian and Comnenian dynasties are being increasingly appreciated, that is, the classicizing art that flourished after the end of iconoclasm from the 10th through the 12th centuries. These icons have long been admired by art historians. Iconographers are only now beginning to recover the masterful and seemingly effortless techniques of the art of this period, plunging into what one iconographer referred to as the ocean of Comnenian iconography. These artists seem to have gone beyond simple egg tempera, creating sophisticated glazes using perhaps an egg oil emulsion. All such efforts have as their goal, not the recovery of earlier techniques only, but to create a new icons of artistic and spiritual presence that will lift up our minds and hearts in spiritual inspiration, reminding us yet again that icons are reflections of the glory of heaven and paradigms of what we also are called to be, polished reflections of Christ, who is himself the icon of the invisible God. Thank you. Anyway, uh, if you could come up, if you would wish to come up and, and uh, ask Father your questions, this way everyone can hear you and he can answer you. And if you can't come up and want the microphone to be brought to you, please uh, let me know and I will do it. Do you have a question? Justin, could you review that mirror piece again? Because you did it very quickly, and it seems to me that was of the essence. I was amazed when I came across this reference, and then I, I made my own translation of the text. It is in the writings of St. Athanasius of Alexandria. He said, For the soul was made according to God's image and created according to his likeness. As the divine scripture shows when it says in the person of Christ, let us make man according to our image and according to our likeness. For this reason, when the soul puts off from itself every stain of sin with which it is covered and keeps pure only what is according to the image, then naturally when this becomes bright, it beholds as in a mirror the image of the Father, the Word, and in him considers the Father of whom the Savior is the image. St. Athanasius wrote this in the fourth century but we find exactly the same imagery, the same concept in the writings of St. Philotheus of Sinai, writing in the 10th century, who writes, at every hour and moment, let us guard the heart with all diligence from thoughts that obscure the soul's mirror. For in that mirror, Jesus Christ, 
The wisdom and power of God the Father is typified and luminously reflected. Anyone else have a question? Father um, there is a lot of fascination among Orthodox Christians with miraculous icons, icons that are especially associated with miracles that happen when you pray in front of them, or weeping or mercy-dreaming icons. I'd never hear of this in, in the earlier centuries of the church, though, and I wondered if you had any insight into when that phenomenon began. Um, does it have ancient roots? The Christ of Sinai brought it to mind because someone pointed out to me that there is a little streak descending from one of his eyes, and they said perhaps this was once a weeping icon. We have had scholars that come to Sinai writing whole volumes on the miracle working icons. We understand that miracles take place through the providence of God, because of the spiritual needs of those who turn to him. Uh, in the theology of the transfiguration, we believe that Christ was always radiating light, but it was only at the transfiguration that the disciples' eyes were opened to perceive this. And so we believe that God is always blessing and healing and supporting us, but sometimes he does so openly because there is a spiritual need and to encourage us and to show his power. Uh, I don't know when one might say we find the earliest examples of a miracle working icon, but some of the earliest references to healing icons, protecting icons, are in the life of St. Simeon the Stylite. He was the one who lived at the top of a column and lived such a heroic way of life that many, many people came to him, many were healed in his presence, and many became Christians in his presence just seeing his heroic way of life. And people would take dust from the area of the column and they would press this to make like clay images of the saint and then they would put this up as a protection of their place. So from the fifth century, you can trace such examples, but the theology of the icon is not limited to miracle working icons. Anyone else have a question? Father Richard. Have a question. Thank you, Father Justin. Uh, you started to talk about the Old Testament prohibitions on depictions of God and suggested that, at least in the East, those have been carried through as uh, prohibitions on depictions of God the Father. Um, and I've, I've seen in some Eastern iconography things that look like the Father. So whether it's a hand or uh, an old bearded man, um, thinking particularly of an icon uh, of the baptism um, by an iconographer of the Protocol School. And I asked him about it, and he said, uh, in fact, you can see he had just finished a talk on how this is emphatically inadmissible in Eastern iconography to depict a God the Father. So I pointed to the icon that he was standing right next to him and said, who's that? Is this the Holy Spirit, the dove, the sun is clearly important, and then there's this bearded man in the clouds. And he said, that's not God the Father, that's the Ancient of Days or the Lord of Hosts. Um, and he said, could think of it as the pre-incarnate word. Um, and I, I understand the distinction he's making, but I don't understand that uh, theologically. So I was wondering if you could explain that. This is a very important concept, and it shows the theology of icons and how icons are reflections of theology. In Byzantine times, they did not portray the Trinity. They would, they would portray the Trinity symbolically. Many times it was called the etimasia, which is the throne prepared for the judgment. It, you would have the throne with the gospel upon the throne and then a vessel. The throne represents the throne that is prepared for the coming of God. 
the gospel representing the word of God, the Christ, and the vessel representing the grace of the Holy Spirit that is poured out. So in these emblems, you would understand the concept of the Trinity. But it is clearly, and um, it, it has been verified that in the medieval West, they did not have such a prohibition. You have the older man representing God the Father, many times holding a cross representing Christ crucified uh, with, with Christ depicted upon the cross. And then in front of Christ, you have the dove since the Holy Spirit was manifest as a dove at the baptism of Christ. And you see the entrance of this iconography into the Orthodox East, and this has been verified by scholars. It was in later centuries that they became controversial. Is this really admissible? Is it Orthodox? Many people said, yes, we have had this for centuries now. Other people said, no, it is not possible. And so even today, it is controversial. You will find people with very heated opinions about whether it is possible to depict the Trinity. There are examples in iconography going back centuries now. Other people say, no, this was always an operation. It should not be done, strictly speaking. And it shows the relevance of, you know, the, these are not abstract questions. They are very, very pertinent. And it shows that icons are always convey a theology. And by looking at the icon, understanding it, then you see the reflection of that theology. So that is a very controversial topic. It clearly came into the Orthodox Church through the influence of the West. And many people have very divided opinions, either for or against this depiction. I remember visiting the, uh, the monastery about 40 years ago. And uh, I meant to ask somebody then, uh, but didn't, so I'll ask it now. Uh, is there a history over the last 1,500 years of the monastery being victimized, uh, looted, uh, attacked? Because it's in such a sensitive place in the ancient world between the various denominational streams that were going up and down. We venerate the 40 martyrs of Sinai because around the year 372, there was a warlike tribe called the Blemies that came from the Sudan. It would cross the Sinai and would go all the way up to Jerusalem. There was a time when the Blemies also killed the monks of Marsava, and these are commemorated in the calendar of the church as martyrs. So we know that it was very dangerous to live in Sinai in the fourth century because of these warlike tribes that would cross the area. That is one of the reasons that the Emperor Justinian ordered the construction of the great fortress and the great basilica. It was done to honor the holy place, to serve as a fortress on what was still the parameter of the Roman Empire, but it was also meant to protect the monks who lived there. In 614, the Persians sacked Jerusalem, but it wasn't worth their while to come all the way to Sinai. And throughout the centuries, it was the isolation that protected the monastery. But that isolation came to an end in the 1970s when they built the present roads, and now Sinai is accessible in a way that was not true before. Many people say it is a tragedy that Sinai is not so isolated. Now everyone can come there, and they come there by the hundreds every single day. And the Archbishop has, has reminded us it is a privilege to live at such a place, and then we have an obligation to keep the spirituality that was preserved there in the silence and the isolation as a living tradition and share it today with people who are looking for consolation and inspiration. There is an, uh, uh, a record that in the 19th century, some tribes came up to the monastery. They threatened the monastery. They were demanding food. There is a tunnel that goes out to the monastery and through the garden. And one of the monks was able to sneak out through the tunnel, remained unseen, and he made it all the way to Cairo. And he appealed to the British admiral. The British admiral sent British troops to the monastery who chased away the Bedouin and then delivered the monastery. 
we have one monk from England, it was Father Nilas. And when he read that in the correspondence that we have in the archives, he was very excited and he said, we should have the annual commemoration of the deliverance of Sinai by the English. <laughs> so this shows the, the isolation that preserved the monastery in ancient times. We can say that the monastery has never been destroyed, has never been abandoned. We point to 17th centuries, a continuous history there and a record that is perhaps unequaled. But we have to be very, very sensitive today because no monastery is so isolated as it once was. And we must be very much a part of the modern world and sensitive to the modern world in seeking to continue to protect the monastery. Thank you, Father Justin, for uh, bringing a word today. Many good words from the holy place for you. <clears throat> a question that's somewhat elementary, I think, but it's, I've thought of it for a number of years, um, about the theology of color in icons, and particularly the color red and blue. Um, the, as far as I can see in Byzantine iconography, um, there's always a distinction or always a, a combination of blue and red when one looks at the uh, Christ, particularly on the Iconostasis, and um, the Theotokos. One is red with blue over the top, and the other is blue with red over the top. And I know the association with the royal, the royal red, but I've never really understood the blue or which, why which is on top of which. And I can say, is there an iconographic tradition to speak to about that? I don't think you can pin it down so exactly, but in the life of St. Gregory of Nyssa, in the life of Moses, he describes the tabernacle and God commanded that definite colors be used for definite curtains. And so he was looking for the, the imagery that might be sub suggested by this. And red to him always pointed to the, the incarnation and the passion of Christ and blue always to heaven and the heavenly glory. So there is a color symbolism that you can find in the writings of the fathers especially in regards to the tabernacle. And I think this carried over into iconography as well. Uh, one of the most splendid manuscripts that we have is a 10th century lectionary, and every letter on every page is written in gold. It's, it's a splendid work to look at. As you turn the pages, they flash and gleam. It has seven illuminations at the very beginning, and Christ and the Virgin Mary are depicted using the blue made from lapis lazuli, and the purple made from the murex, which is the Tyrian purple. These were the two most costly pigments and they were reserved for depictions of Christ and the Virgin Mary. In the depiction of Christ, we have the lapis lazuli, the blue inner garment, and the purple outer garment. And then in the, in the icon of the Virgin Mary, these are reversed. So, It may be that the costliness of the colors influenced this identification, but we also trace this back to the Old Testament where they used red and blue in the tabernacle. Father, thank you for coming today. It's a privilege. You know, I have a lot of evangelical friends, Protestant friends, and nothing bristles them like the veneration of icons, lighting of candles, uh, crossing ourselves. And I'm, I'm at a loss always to try to explain the difference between veneration and worshiping a piece of wood. And I didn't know if you could help me with that, maybe. I appreciated the verse that I quoted from St. Theodore the Studite. He said, the mind does not remain with the materials, for this is the error of the idolaters, but through the materials, the mind ascends to the heavens. And I think that is something that is missed by Protestants in their, who have a, a dualistic mentality that depreciates the physical in trying to exalt the spiritual. It is through the physical that we ascend to the spiritual. And this is what he says, this is the faith of the Orthodox. So we, we find this in the writings of the fathers. It is difficult to put that into 
understandable common words. And I tried to touch on that, but tried to cover many things in my talk. But I think this is key to helping someone understand that we are not idolaters, but we ascend to the spiritual through the material, the material that has been sanctified by the incarnation. I noticed that the early icons, the very early ones that he showed us, the facial features were much more realistic than modern icons. And modern icons, modern meaning in the last 30 centuries, even the ones that they're currently uh, painting, the nose is always elongated, the ears are bigger than normal, and it's not exactly the image of a human being. But the early icons that you showed us the earlier icons, uh, the, the, the most famous icon of Christ is, this, is the 6th century encaustic icon of Christ. That had been later overpainted, uh, not the face so much, but they had made the outline, the, the background uniformly gold, and where Christ's garments are more obscure, they had tried to highlight that. So when this was first published by Greek scholars in the 1950s, they said, 13th century, but with archaic elements. And it wasn't until a Greek conservator cleaned the icon and removed these later additions, which were easy to detect because they were not done in the wax encaustic technique, that the icon emerged in its original splendor. And it was Kurt Weizmann who said, this has to be 6th century. And he was able to substantiate that by making comparisons and that has been accepted by scholars throughout the world ever since. So the, the earliest icons of, of Sinai were not well known before they were published by uh, Kurt Weitzman in his studies from the, early, from the 1950s and 1960s. It, it is remarkable that they are so spiritual and at the same time much more realistic. And I think that is due to the fact that they are so early, they are still drawing on the classical heritage, but also it is due to the fact that they were painted in the wax encaustic technique where the brush strokes must be very rapid and almost impressionistic just because the wax sets very quickly and the icons had to be painted with uh, spontaneity. The egg tempera technique is quite different. You, you, you build up shading with, with uh, multiple tiny strokes and the whole approach is much more painstaking and much more detailed. So that accounts, that is one reason to account for the differences. But the earliest icons are striking because they are so much more realistic than the later icons that became more stylized. And it is um, important to remember all of these different styles and the transitions. I was wondering, did they purposely do that after the icons were well, these icons, these icons predate iconoclasm, so they would have been common, I believe, before iconoclasm, and it was after iconoclasm that icons became more stylized. You see that in the mosaics as well. The Sinai Christ, the transfiguration in the apse, has a strength and a dynamic quality that you don't see in the icons that you see at Hagia Sophia, which are much more sophisticated, but they don't have the strength of the earlier icons. Last question. Okay, one more question. Actually, my question is not about the icons, it's more about the monasteries. So we know all these places in, um, in, in Egypt, in uh, Greece, all wonderful holy places. And how about here in the United States? Uh, do we have any places, I mean, such places like this? Thank you so much for The Greeks take Sinai very much for granted. It's part of their ancient heritage. And uh, I think an American appreciates it even more because everything in America here is so recent. Uh, we knew someone who had a home built in 
Massachusetts in 1680, and it had been in her family since then. It was one of the oldest structures surviving in America, but 1680 is quite recent compared to, to Sinai's history. So, so it is important to remember how recent everything is here, but there are opportunities here in the United States that may not exist in the old country. In the United States, everyone has been taken out of the culture that had been there for centuries in their homeland. Everyone is in a new country, and they become more open to different cultures and different faiths. So there's the possibility of an appreciation of something that you may not have grown up with that would not be true of the countries in the old country. So, so that is an important opportunity, but it is so important to convey the rich heritage of the Orthodox Church in all of its fullness. And to do that, it is important to remain in contact with the home countries and to immerse oneself in all of the complexity. One person said, well, it was St. Cyril and Methodius who wrote that the Orthodox faith is like a great ocean. We can go out to a certain distance if we're very tall, but there will always be further to go that no one can fathom in its entirety. So it, it is a great ocean, but it is one in which we can lose ourselves with, with joy, always learning, always knowing that there is more to learn, even when we have studied this a great deal. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.